All right, folks, welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where the smoke is still clearing from the shootout at the OK Corral. That's right. Last night's debate in Cleveland was one heck of a rumble. It felt more like an MMA cage match than a traditional uh, debate. And I think it may take several days for us to appreciate uh, if or when or how this debate affected the American electorate. A lot of things to look at. We're gonna, I'm going to give you a little overview of my take of what happened based on reporting I've done this morning. So uh, it'll be based on informed reporting, not, not on speculation. Uh, and two, uh, there was a bombshell revelation that uh, occurred yesterday. I, I, we caught it on air in real time. But I want to talk about just how significant this revelation is about um, the intelligence community's warning President Obama, and then it's criminal referral to the FBI saying they detected evidence that Hillary Clinton had concocted the Russia collusion story simply to take the focus off of her scandals, the email scandal, the Clinton cash scandal. Uh, It is extraordinary that that has been a secret for four years and that it only comes out 36, 35 days before uh, the election. But it has profound implications, and we want to talk about that. And we have a fantastic guest today for you, Dr. Waleed Ferris, one of the great foreign policy advisors to conservatives over the last two, three decades. Also very influential with places like the DIA, the FBI, the CIA. Dr. Ferris's thoughts on fighting terrorism, on the threat posed by groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle East, uh, his thoughts on China and Russia. I've been influential for a very long time. He's got a new book out, The Choice, Trump versus Obama-Biden in U.S. foreign policy. It's a great read. We didn't get a lot of foreign policy in the debate last night, but when you hear what Dr. Ferris has to say, it's going to make a lot of sense, and you're going to kind of get a preview because the next debate coming up uh, between uh, Biden and Trump is going to be a lot more foreign policy focused, so we don't want to miss that. All right, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, two things we want to talk about. Who won? Who lost? What happened? Did did anyone survive the great shootout at the OK Corral uh, yesterday, the debate? And a follow-up on the story we broke on this very show yesterday, the explosive memo from the Office of Director of National Intelligence revealing Hillary Clinton's plan for a dirty trick on Donald Trump. And yes, it did involve Russia. All right, let's go to that commercial break. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Listen, you ask often, how can we do something uh, to help just the news and the reporting we do? John Solomon reports podcast. Well, you just heard from some of our great sponsors. You're going to hear from more as the show goes on. Support them, buy their products, subscribe to their services. Let them know that you learned about them from just the news because what they do for us uh, makes our shows, our reporting, our website, our podcasts, our brand new television shows all possible. And uh, I can't thank them enough. I'm so grateful for all the great sponsors and advertisers that have joined the team here. Uh, But please, one way you can reward them uh, and reward us at the same time is by buying their products and services and let them know John Solomon, just the news sent you because we want them to know that we support them. All right. Uh, I got a lot of questions overnight and into the morning. Uh, what did I make of the debate yesterday? I don't have any personal opinions. I try not to have opinions, but I can provide some analysis based on some informed reporting. And I think these are the three takeaways from last night's debate. Um, I think Trump's aggressive behavior may have been a little bit over the top, at least as it came to influential influencing independent voters. It probably was very good for his base. It made up for the inadequacies that that uh, the moderator, Chris Wallace, had uh, in both asking questions that seemed fair and balanced or challenging Joe Biden. He didn't seem to be very interested in challenging Joe Biden. Uh, But uh, the over-aggression probably had an effect. If you were leaning towards uh, Biden but undecided, you might have got pushed a little bit more that way. Um, I think, secondly, um, the over-aggression didn't do what I think it was intended to do, which was to make Joe Biden stumble. And I think, uh, you know, Biden generally um, uh, held his own. I I wouldn't say he had a strong debate. I don't think he had a lot to say for why we should vote for him. He was more about what he didn't like about Donald Trump and the name calling. Uh, But he didn't completely implode, as some people thought, that it wasn't a need for a secret airpiece, at least not that we could see. And I think the president often didn't let Joe Biden start to give long answers but some of those long answers may have drawn out some of those concerns. Uh, we have seen when he gives a speech that goes more than a couple minutes, that it's a few minutes into that discussion where uh, Biden uh, has um, devolved, lost his train of thought, um, got confused. And he didn't have to answer many times more than a few minutes because of the Trump interruptions and the banter and the, uh, the very aggressive thing. And I think if President Trump at least the people I'm talking to this morning, which, by the way, many of them are on the Trump team. They believe that letting uh, Biden breathe a little longer may have drawn out some of his uh, flaws and failures that we're, we've been waiting to see. So I would expect a different Donald Trump in the next debate based on what I know, uh, based on what I've reported today. Uh, but I also think there were two very cogent moments in the debate uh, where Points may have been scored that we may not see for a couple of days or even a week. Um, <clears throat> often there are the obvious moments, the gotcha moments, the ta-da moments, you know, uh, Lloyd Benson schooling um, Dan Quayle on Jack Kennedy is, you know, one of those great moments. Um, Ronald Reagan turning around uh, on Mondale and saying, I won't use my age against my opponent. One of the great flips of an issue around on to the opponent. Uh, I don't think anyone scored those sort of overt victorious uh, punches. Uh, Biden certainly didn't land any big ones. And, um, you know, name-calling clown liar probably didn't help uh, his side much. Uh, President Trump didn't land any big ones like that either, not any memorable one-line twist. But I do think his aggressive style did 
forced Joe Biden to repudiate the activist far left part of the Democratic Party, which, by the way, today it's the, the part represented by Bernie Sanders, the socialist and AOC and and Ariana Presley and the other members of the squad. It's a, an aggressive new millennial leftist socially socialist sympathizing part of the party. And Joe Biden repudiated it under pressure from Donald Trump. He said, I am the Democratic Party, not those guys. Uh, he distanced himself from the Green New Deal that uh, his own running mate, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, endorsed and co-sponsored and was part of. Um, he also called Antifa an idea, not a uh, movement or a group. I think there's some pretty strong evidence that that's not true. There is an organizational structure to Antifa that, that carries out some of these um, protests and attacks. And then I think, so that's the second thing, it is, and this may not show up right away. Did Joe Biden break this very um, fragile trust that he had built, the bridge he had built to the far left? Let's let's face it. For most of his life, Joe Biden was a middling, um, uh, moderate Democrat who liked to stick his foot in his mouth, run every four, eight, ten years for president, not win, drop out early, uh, and you know have some hearings in the Foreign Relations Committee. That was sort of who Joe Biden was. And get on the train and Amtrak and talk to reporters like me, which he's done before. Um, the That uh, persona at age 77, 78, is not the persona of the young, far-left, restless part of the Democratic Party. And I think they may have, we'll have to wait and see, but they may have... Um, um, felt repudiated by his comments. I am the Democratic Party. I'm not for the Green Deal. Um, I think uh, uh, I'm not for Medicare for all, Bernie's signature uh, software uh, uh, policy position. Uh, that distancing may have undone lots of uh, months of careful orchestration between the Biden campaign staff and their um the left wing of the party. We'll have to watch and play out. We won't see it right away. But if you start to see Joe Biden's support drop, particularly among those who identify themselves as socialists or social Democrats, um, democratic socialists, um, uh, young millennials, if they, if they start responding that they're less likely to vote, that they, uh, that you see a dip in Biden's support, then you'll know that that sort of, subversive punch, subliminal punch actually did have an effect on the election based on people I'm talking to today. It's a real concern among the Democrats. It's a possibility that the Trump could have scored an impact on the electorate through that, but it's not one that's going to be played out right away. I think the last takeaway I have from the, the debate from my reporting is pretty unequivocally that uh, Joe Biden doesn't have an answer for the law and order response that the president has. President Trump has been clear. I'm on the side of police. I'm on the side of law and order. I will not let uh, radical rioters, socialists, um, antagonists um, destroy this great country because I'm going to enforce the law. And the only ones who are allowing it to be destroyed are Democrats who are sympathetic to the cause. Joe Biden did not have a good comeback for that. And I think that that uh, could, among suburban voters worried about, is this coming to my neighborhood soon? Uh, Trump may have won some points on that. Um, I think if Biden won some points, it was he, he was generally calm and sounded more like a traditional politician, which President Trump never is going to be. 
He didn't run to be a traditional politician. He's the repudiation of traditional politics. But I think that could have had an effect. All right, one more. We're going to get to Dr. Waleed Ferris in a second. Great interview, big foreign policy. Um, but before we get to that, real quickly, I think um, yesterday's revelation that there's an intelligence set of documents showing that the CIA first intercepted information that the Russians believed Hillary Clinton was authorizing a dirty trick to tie Trump falsely to the Russia collusion and to the Russia hacking thing, uh, that that ultimately got confirmed enough that they brought it, they thought it was strong enough. It wasn't just Russia disinformation. It was strong enough to be validated that it was briefed to President Obama in late July 2016. And then the evidence that the intelligence community got was so strong that they felt comfortable referring it for possible criminal investigation, counterintelligence investigation at the FBI. This is explosive, and why? Here is the bottom line. If in July, early July, the CIA, the intelligence community, knew that Hillary Clinton's Russia collusion claims, Christopher Steele's Russia collusion claims, which, by the way, came from a known Russian agent and was determined, declared by uh, the intelligence community to be Russian disinformation in the Steele dossier, if they knew this was a dirty truck from the beginning and they didn't stop it, they didn't repudiate it, they didn't investigate it, and instead they perpetrated the continuation of an investigation of Russia collusion that did not exist, of wrongdoing that was not there. Remember, the agents recommended closing down the Flynn file, not continuing in January 17 because there was no evidence, no derogatory information. If they didn't stop it, they willfully then participated in a fraud upon the American people, upon the FISA court, and upon the Congress. That is the bottom line of why this document released yesterday is so important, so explosive. You wouldn't know from the New York Times, Washington Post, and and I'm going to ask Waleed Ferris about this in a few minutes, but um, you wouldn't know from the media's coverage, but it is a profound piece of evidence. And what I say is it's one-page summary from uh, John Radcliffe, the DNI, I think President Trump should declassify everything around this so we can learn what else happened, what else is going on. Um, If this was a dirty trick, not only fooling the FBI, but actually the FBI was participating in it after knowing it was a dirty trick, um, we have a much greater accountability issue than even I thought we had when I set out to write the stories that I did to correct the record on Russia collusion starting in the summer of 17. All right, folks, we've talked enough. We're going to get, go to a quick commercial break from our great sponsors. When we come back, Dr. Waleed Ferris, one of the great foreign policy minds in American policy today, joining us here to talk about his new book, The Choice, and about all the amazing things going on in the world. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake-me-up-when-the-sun-sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest, somebody that if you've covered foreign policy or national security over the years, you've certainly crossed paths with him. Dr. Waleed Ferris, one of the great conservative 
foreign policy thinkers in America, influential, was an advisor to Mitt Romney, has long helped the CIA, the FBI, and other intelligence agencies with training and counterterrorism. And uh, I like to say he was uh, he was fighting the war against terrorism before it was even popular. He, he was warning of the sort of things that we've all learned to deal with now, but was way ahead of the curve. Dr. Ferris, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, John, for having me today. It is an honor, and especially after the release of your big book here, The Choice, Trump versus Obama-Biden in the U.S. Foreign Policy. If you haven't had a chance, folks, grab this book. This is an important book, and we're all trying to sort out uh, the differences between the two candidates. And I, I uh, want to get your reaction first, Dr. Ferris. Just what did you see yesterday at the debate? How did it play out, particularly on the foreign policy issues, but maybe even in the larger spectrum of politics? Well, basically, yesterday we learned about at least two points that uh, have uh, impact on national security. And obviously, it showed very well that President Trump, with his short four years, uh, has been able to be aware and uh, help in protecting the homeland security and national security way more than the eight years of the Obama-Biden administration. A one important point was, in fact, you know, uh, the violence that is now uh, all over the country, has been for the last few months. And it looks like the president is bringing the line that this is a priority, that this is menacing versus Mr. Biden, former Vice President Biden, who said, well, that's just ideas. That's just an ideology. No, right. an idea and ideology do not burn down shops and kill people and injure people and threaten to go to the suburbs. So that was, a, I think, a major point made by the president, I mean, families and individual Americans living in this beautiful country, before even economy, before the environment, before anything else that could be debatable, just as the Romans used to say, primo vivere. First, you want to make sure that no, <laughs> your freedom and exactly. your life are not threatened. Right. That's a great point. I, I think a lot of people may have missed the significance of that uh, moment in the debate. Um when you look through, did, did President Trump do enough to tout the successes he had? Like, I didn't hear much discussion about the Middle East peace uh, deals that have been arranged, but those are pretty historic. Was there a missed opportunity because of format, because of the candidates rumbling, uh, to not talk more about some of the foreign policy successes, which, by the way, you helped craft in the early strategies of the, of the campaign? Uh, John, as far as I know, I may not know everything, but this debate was mostly to focus on domestic issues. That's right. The second debate will include uh, major foreign policy and national security matters. So I don't believe that it was the timing was not for these mm -hmm. matters, but when they will. And that's why I'm here happy to discuss the book with you. Uh, there will be a day and night difference between what the Obama-Biden administration have done badly done during the eight years and what the Trump administration, Trump-Pence administration have been able to achieve in their short four years, despite, and we can come back to that point, despite a resistance by the bureaucracy that was left behind by the Obama administration. So despite all of that, the Trump group was able to achieve a number of successes. And I think that uh, the comparison that we, you and I are doing today, uh, discussing the book, will appear very clear when the second debate will come. That's a really good point. The format really didn't allow for much opportunity to, to delve into those things. Uh, 
Um, when we, um, when I looked at the book, I was struck by the fact that you, you know, normally each president, uh, they break from their predecessor. And so, but you, you very carefully chose this title to say it's Trump versus the Obama Biden, uh, uh, foreign policy. And I think, uh, describe a little bit of, uh, I think people forget that Barack Obama just wasn't really that interested in foreign policy. I think he once said, uh, just don't do stupid stuff was the basically the summary of his foreign doctrine. Uh, but, uh, really uh, uh, Joe Biden was the foreign policy engine of the Obama mm-hmm. administration. And I think you're, you're trying to make a point in this title. Describe how it's a continuation and how Trump disrupted uh, a lot of that um, uh, policy after he took office in 2017. John, you have a point. It was, uh, it was Biden uh, who basically was brought in by uh, former President Obama to give his ticket the appearance of experience, knowing that Senator Biden was there for decades and decades, right? And he was often, you know, uh, displaying himself or uh, describing himself as the expert in foreign policy. Now, what happens? Just the opposite. The Obama administration entered an era of major problems in foreign policy, and the list is so long. I will pick uh, maybe two or three uh, of of those, and would share with my readers and with your listeners how the Trump administration tried to change the course of that ship going towards very difficult waters. Number one, and above everything, the the infamous Iran deal. And I explain in my book, John, that the Iran deal is not just a deal. It is a uh, an agreement to shift a lot of wealth from one part of the world to another part of the world and to associate America with radical forces. So the deal is done with Tehran's rulers. Right. In fact, it will it will comprise Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Yemen, transforming the Iran regime into a very rich, oppressive regime, giving them one hundred and fifty billion dollars. And I make the case that with part of that big amount of money, I don't know how much Iranian influence used that money to be able to impact foreign policies in the West. How do you think basically Iran was able to get that much influence in Paris, Berlin, London, and I might say Washington, D.C. as well, because of the cash that we send them. But beyond that, John, very quickly, the Iran deal is about investing, is about having Western interests investing in the Iran regime, therefore changing the, for, the foreign policy of the United States, not containing anymore this, this predator, which is the Iran regime, reminding us a little bit of how the, the Weimar Republic in Germany collapsed and uh, the Western powers at first allowed the National Socialist regime of Hitler to expand in Europe. And the rest was, as we all know, it a drama. Yep. No, it, it definitely it rolled out. History has shown how that played out. There's no doubt. When you um, when we look at the Middle East, the, the different approach. So the um, I've had some people say that the Obama-Biden policy was one of appeasement and that Trump was a return to the Reagan-Bush doctrine of peace through strength, which is we don't uh, give in to our enemies, we hold firm and we get we get them to accede to our our strategic interests. Um, do you see uh, the, do you see the combination? I mean, when you look at the book, and I think I think you draw this out pretty nicely in the book, do you see uh, Trump being more a return to the Reagan years? And um, and is it that starker contrast that really the Obama Biden policy, foreign policy, was one of appeasement, whether it's Iran one day or, or uh, you know other bad actors throughout throughout the time, uh, Libya, Russia. I mean, we, all the places mm-hmm. that we went, Russia was 
a big giveaway and didn't work. So uh, do you do you see sort of Trump being a either a new doctrine or a return to an old doctrine? It's a new doctrine, but relaunched by the Reagan concept of, you know, strength, security and peace. And that basically is very clear. For example, the Iran deal obstructed the peace process between Israel and the Arabs. No Arab country wanted to engage in any peace track because of the Iran deal, because the Obama-Biden administration empowered Iran. And you know what? They started to weaken the resolve That's a great point. of Bahrain, of UAE, of Saudis, putting pressure on them. Don't do this in Yemen. And then, of course, the State Department of the Obama administration was punishing Bahrain. The same countries and the UAE, the same countries, which when uh, Trump removed the Iran deal, came immediately to Washington with Israel and concluded peace. So that by itself, when historians will read it again, and of course, the American public would read it in my book as an appetizer, they would understand that the Iran deal killed peace. It did not provide peace. It killed peace. And when it was removed, when that cancer was removed, then peace resumed. And very quickly, the president is talking about not just the UAE and Bahrain. He's talking about another five Arab countries, most likely after election or re-election, I hope, uh, will come to that peace agreement, the Abraham Accord. Yeah, it's really a, a tectonic shift in the um, in the region and, and, and perhaps globally as well. When you look at um, Trump and Biden on Europe, describe a little bit about the differences between them when it comes to, to Europe and, and our, our post-Cold War you know, d- dynamic there. Well, there was the Europe all the way up to, uh, you know, the strong democracies uh, such as Britain during the Cold War, uh, even some French leaders, they all opposed the expansion of communism of the Soviet Union. Then there was the weak European democracies, which were uh, shocked by the 1973 oil boycott, and they realized that they don't have any other alternatives. So they started to make concessions first in their foreign policies, then the mass migration, uncontrolled migration into Europe. So it put Europe in a different position of the old Europe, the one that was fighting fascism and communism, etc. Unfortunately, academia, uh, John, in America followed that more of a left-wing uh, Europe, and it American academia influenced media, American media, and it's from that environment that the uh, Obama elite came from. They did not come from the, uh, you know, Western NATO resistance to authoritarianism. They came uh, from those elites. And once in the White House, unfortunately, they joined these uh, defeatist forces in Europe. Now, a Trump surge in, 19, in, in 2016 uh, changed that equation. There was the withdrawal from the European policies towards the Middle East, for the Iran deal, of course. But there was an inspiration to many Europeans. And I'm not talking just about far right groups and, you know, the, the ultra national. I'm talking about the mainstream people in Europe. I have been an advisor to members of the European Parliament for 15 years. And uh, I realized that the Europeans are very nervous about their own policies, about their own foreign policies. Until now, France and Greece and Italy and Spain, they're all very concerned about this organized, manipulated uh, migration that has been launched out of certain spots in the Middle East. And now they realize that Trump, the choice that Trump made, uh, were the right uh, choices. So Trump actually may, his administration 
may impact a change in foreign policy in Europe, just the other way around. That's such a great, um, such a great point to, to remind. Now, what about China? Obviously, uh, Joe Biden has changed his rhetoric on China substantially to match much more closely where Donald Trump has been for two decades on China. Um, how significant an event is that? And in this next debate, is that an area that you expect the president to double down on? He will. He'll definitely do because uh, he has one plus, one advantage of the, uh, beyond beyond what Biden could offer, and it's the following: during the eight years of the Obama-Biden administration, it was a let me call it technically surrender to China control and expansion. I mean, even under the uh, Clinton administration, China was brought in, right. and under to the international community, and under the Obama administration, uh, China was allowed to expand everywhere at the expense of American interests, the ones that really Trump wanted to defend. But at the same time, Donald Trump was the one who engaged in a serious discussion, a serious uh, engagement with the President Xi of China, but a, an equal one. He would pressure them and tell them, we need to change. We don't want to be colonized economically by you, but we can work on uh, stabilizing world economy. And he achieved that status just one month, I would say, before the corona expansion. And that is what Trump is going to be confronting Biden with in the terms of I can fight that influence, but I can cut deals at the same time. And you failed in both. Yeah. Uh, the the expansion of China as a global power predominantly occurred in the Obama-Biden years. And yeah. Joe Biden has these moments on record that are irrefutable, right? Which are, I... Um, uh, China's growth is good for America. They're not our enemy. Uh, we should be helping them expand. And obviously the Chinese wanted to hear that. Um, yeah. And um, I think that that will be a, a major flashpoint in the, in the next debate. The Hunter Biden allegations, the idea that Hunter Biden is trotting around the globe in the jet stream of his father getting deals, um, uh, even if people don't see that it influenced policy, do they see a corrupt intent there? And could that also factor into the next debate, the Hunter Biden getting rich off of China, off Ukraine, off of Russia? God knows where else he's gone that we don't know yet. Here's the irony. The Biden slash Obama camp, because Obama is behind and, of course, coordinating strategically all that matter, right. along with his team, have been trying to attack Trump on ethics and morality and your phone call with the president of Ukraine, you were betraying the, you know, the American people and you have interests with Russia. They have been doing this for four years, for most of the four years, trying to isolate him and trying, of course, to impeach him, as we all know. Why? Because they wanted to paralyze the real Trump foreign policy before it achieved its own goals and then give him even a, a, a more steam for the next four years. In return, we are learning now, the other side, that it was really their administration and people connected with their leaders, including sons and family members and others who had so much and so many favors uh, by China and other places as well. We will learn more maybe about the Iran deal and who profited from the Iran deal. So I think President Trump in the next two debates, I wouldn't say just the next one, will raise those issues and will just explain, hey, guys, you have been attacking me, paralyzing me, and look what you have done with your own circles of power. Such a great, such a great point and uh, often lost in the debates of today. Um, you, you've been in this town a long time and um, you've been in uh, 
a place to talk to the media. Are you frustrated today that the traditional media, the media that have been here for a long time, are uh, do, not doing their job the way they did 20 years ago? Do you subscribe to that opinion or do you think media is not a problem? No, no, media is the mother of all problems. And I argued <laughs> this, uh, except did. to islands here and there, uh, not just in this book. I mean, in this book, I was very explicit that media, um, so-called mainstream media, which in my view, it's not even a mainstream media, it's a militant media, it's the opposition media. Uh, mainstream media is gone, it's dead. Uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and Wall, even the Wall Street Journal to a certain extent, Right. And CNN in, in the 80s and before that, a little bit after that, you know, were still perceived as, as mainstream media. Now they are militant media. They coordinate. They have a war room. The same talking points are all over. It reminds me actually of the Middle East, how the <laughs> Syrian Ba'athist media operate or the Iranian media operate or even the time of the Soviet Union with the Izvestia and TASS and, and others. So that's where they are at this point in time, unfortunately. And that comes from two reasons, in my view. There are maybe more. One is that those who occupied those desks, the news desks in, in the media, are coming from where? From a classroom. The classroom in America and in, on our campuses and our universities has been corrupted for decades now, either because of the far left, I call them the neo-Bolsheviks, who wants to repeat the experience of the early 20th century, which has failed, and that is militant communism, or since the uh, at least late 70s, early 80s, a huge influx of petrodollars coming from the Middle East right. and other spots in the world, including Venezuela later, that corrupted the study of international relations. So imagine that classroom, John, producing graduates going where? To the newsroom. And then even from the newsroom, uh, they would go to the uh, courtroom and war room. That's why People are shocked to see that individuals who are supposed to be coming from, you know, respectable universities, they are carrying the waters of ideas and ideologies coming from overseas and being used in a campaign against a president and his camp and in his camp and his administration who wants to liberate America from foreign influences. And let me say one more point. I know there are differences between Romney and Trump, but when I was serving, in the Romney campaign as a national security advisor, right. I also saw the same network. Actually, let me say, even during the Bush years, the, the same network and the same media have been fighting the independentist America. Should it be Bush or Romney or Trump now? And that media has, is now on steroids, probably because of the push given by the Iran deal petrodollars. It's um, people forget that um, the subtle influences, which are not so subtle, actually, from foreign powers are so um, have been for the last 20, 25 years, so focused on the academic world in, in Washington. We see the evolving China scholar scandal here where the Justice Department is routinely, uh, almost daily now, it seems like, uh, arresting and uh, either Chinese academics or Americans who didn't disclose that they were being funded by China. And obviously that's a focus in some part on espionage, some focus on, mm -hmm. on winning our hearts and minds. And then you mentioned, you know, the Qataris and others in the, the Middle right. East who, who poured uh, billions or millions and billions of dollars into our academic system. Have we been asleep for 20 years at appreciating that the foreign influence operations in our, uh, of our enemies, of our frenemies, have been more focused on our learning institutions than we appreciated or called out? Absolutely. I am glad that 
at, at you know at last the Trump administration in a very modest effort right. is now looking at academia looking uh, such efforts would need another 15 years to clean up and reverse the process that started you know I emigrated here 30 years ago right when the collapse of the Soviet Union and when I came you know already the work has started in undermining and penetrating and influencing our academia. It started first uh, at the edges, like Middle Eastern studies, and then it moved to social studies, then political science, and then you could find it now in a history study. It's unescapable. Any student who would want to get a degree in social science will be impacted by that influence coming from overseas, from a variety of places. You mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood and Qatar. Now they are the main, main provider for, you know, the, the, the funds uh, on, on our campuses. And not just that, I, I learned also that the Qatar lobbies and other lobbies have been also engaging with our mainstream media. It's not even a secret, John. I mean, they register, you know, they have to register for FARA. And then when you read it, you see that, the, for example, the Qatar lobby has engaged with the New York Times in one year, 2018, more than 70 times, seven zero. 70? Wow. It is public information. So people don't pay attention to what would that mean. It means that when the New York Times write articles about the Muslim Brotherhood, systematically, people could go online and read. It's always in favor. Oh, these are the reformists. They represent the people. And when they write articles against the opponents of the Muslim Brotherhood, they describe them. I mean, God knows, Islamophobic. They, you know, that of they course, are actually yeah. fault of, yeah, of other regimes, so on and so forth. So... Yes, there is a direct impact between uh, the lobbies, not just in education, but now at this point in time uh, regarding media as well. Really a fascinating thing. I think we will look back at the, um, the early 21st century and realize that we were asleep at the switch during some very critical times, why our foreign enemies grew. I mean, that China uh, took aggression in the South China Sea with a passive response from the Obama administration, our academic institutions got infiltrated. Uh, and um, and a lot of what we're reaping today uh, is the fruits of 20 years of being asleep at the at the switch. And, uh, you know, I had Newt Gingrich on the show not too long ago, and he mm -hmm. said that uh, he regrets his uh, vote uh, and effort to uh, give to normalize trade with China, he, that he missed bet on the fact that China would be a good partner and that Western influences, Western culture, Western economics would influence them to move our way. And in fact, they've tried to, you know, basically hold their line and steal our secrets, our money, our capital, uh, and bring it their way. When you look back uh, at that moment, which was in the late 90s during the Bill Clinton administration, when we got rid of most favored nation status and made um, China a permanent member of the, the uh, economic uh, leadership of the world, did we did we miss a boat there? And is there any way to create some of that leverage that we used to hold over China back in the 90s and 80s? If it was John F. Kennedy that launched that policy, if it was Reagan who launched that policy, you would understand that they were living in the Cold War, that you would open up a little bit. It's like the discussions that Reagan and then next administration had with the last part of the Soviet Union with Gorbachev. When right. Gorbachev started to engage in, you remember Glasnost, right. Perestroika, reform. Perestroika, so sure. You would open up, you would open and tell them, do more, I'll open more. Right. So you are encouraging them to collapse. And that's exactly what happened. 
But with China, we opened the gates completely to the flood and then yeah. left them, left them and went away and did other stuff because we believed that the Cold War is over. The Soviet Union was down and therefore there are no more threats. It was true with regard to China. It was true with regard to the Islamic fundamentalists and others. There was this complete collapse of Western defenses starting from Washington after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And obviously the foreign powers were stunned. So they used everything they've got. The petrodollars were ready before. So that's why you see influence by Qatar Brotherhood. But then China, when it was brought into the international economic system, it started to make money. And when you start to make money, you have enough money to gain influence among your foe. And that is basically what happened under the Clinton eight years. And after that, we have we had 9-11. So we directed our efforts against Al-Qaeda and the jihadists. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the eight years of the Obama administration allowed China to do what it has been able to do and to become a power not just in China and continental China, but all over the world, in Africa and Latin America and, and elsewhere. Being powerful is fine, but to the ex at the expense of the American rights and national security, and as you said, on our, uh, on our shores, that, that is where the big mistake was. It's, um, I think uh, it's easy to armchair quarterback, but it's almost worth doing it because of the fact that we need to learn from some of the miscalculations of the groupthink that foreign policy was driven by for such a long time. When, when you, uh, your book does a great job of getting into uh, Trump, and I think one of, the, one of the populist parts of his Trump doctrine, if there is one emerging right now, is the ending of endless wars. Yeah. Um, that war, in Donald Trump's mind, war as a last resort isn't just a, a throwaway line. It is the, one of the principal thoughts of his foreign policy, principal pillars of his foreign policy. How much has the world changed when they realize that this president isn't going to just fight a war for the purpose of fighting a war or just because it's a vanity opportunity for him? Uh, do you think that our allies and our enemies are adjusting to the concept that we're going to use our military might still with extraordinary precision and accuracy and power, but maybe not as often as solving every world problem that uh, comes our way by, by force? Unfortunately, since the end of the Cold War, John, um, we, you know, we've mutated in a direction whereby our military force, obviously, when we are attacked, we, we, we responded. But then we were installing those troops across the world with no real mission except being managed. Right. We have forces in Germany. We have forces, you know, in the Sinai. We have, and, you know, those forces were not really even directed to win wars. If you want to end a war, you would win it and then you would leave behind you a force that is able to replace what you were doing. That's what we tried to do and we did in Japan. Japan is able to do it by, by itself, right. Germany. And of course, uh, the, when the Obama administration came in and then after all these years of efforts in Iraq against Al-Qaeda and everything, right. it says, okay, I'm leaving overnight, December 31st, 2011, I'm leaving. Hey, wait a minute, who are you leaving behind? So our military, when they are given missions, they do them in an amazing way. We, we, we win all wars. We can win all wars. We yes. know that. Yep. But it's our politicians and diplomats who, are no, who were not doing the right thing under the Obama administration. And we paid a price with the return of ISIS, with the coming in of Iranian militias. So if we don't know how to end the war, it will be a prompt for a new, bigger war. And that's what we're doing today in Iraq. When you survey over some of the biggest 
moments of Trump foreign policy, Trump military presence, uh, whether it's Soleimani, whether it's uh, the peace deals in in Middle East, whether it's um, uh, cheering on Brexit and, and you know getting Brexit at least in the Great Britain. What are the most consequential three? What are what are three moments in the in the Trump foreign policy that have changed the world? No matter who the next president is, we've we've changed the course of history. What would you identify those as? You know, in the book. I looked at 15 foreign policy right. areas of difference between uh, the Obama, Biden, Biden, Obama group and uh, Trump. Eight of them are really about national security. They will impact us. Three of them, I think, are crucial, were crucial, and they were very demonst- demonstrative of what he has achieved. Number one and foremost is the issue about Iran. I mean, our policy regarding Iran has dramatically changed. And the peak of it was the withdrawal, one peak, there were two peaks. One was the withdrawal from the Iran deal. It just crumbled Iranian influence and then disoriented their supporters in the West. And second, the hit against Soleimani. So instead of going for a full-fledged war in Iraq against Iranian troops, he eliminated the one who was preparing a wave against us. So the Iran policy would be one pole that he has changed and that he will have to continue, obviously, or others will have to deal with. The second one is ISIS, the speed with which the Trump administration administered or prosecuted the war in Iraq and in Syria and dismantled the ISIS caliphate very quickly, while the uh, Obama administration from 2014 till early 2017 was not able to roll back ISIS and was influenced. And then, he, you know, the White House, John, as we're learning now, was you know, engaging in tactical decisions. I mean, you leave it to the military. You don't do tactical decisions because you want to please the Muslim Brotherhood or you want to please this other quarter. So the ISIS change of policy that the Trump administration have done was very important. And the third one that you just mentioned is the peace process. I mean, in one year, in six months, if we calculate all the preparation, right. uh, the Trump administration was able to uh, sponsor two peace agreements between Arab countries and Israel, and none was done in the full eight years of the Obama-Biden administration. I will take those three because they are linked to our national security as well. Yeah, that's such a great point. And there's an avalanche now really starting in in the Middle East between the Gulf Arab states and Israel that probably can't, won't be reversed even even if there were a different president. It seems as though may, the momentum is there, right? May, may I add one thing is that sure. we're not just witnessing peace processes, like with Egypt or Jordan. Peace, and then it stays cold, and then those who have the reign of action are Iran, Hezbollah. No. What is happening now between the UAE and Israel is something that Americans will be stunned to see. It's an alliance. It's the genesis of an alliance, a chunk of the Arab world, a very advanced one, the UAE. And you know what? Behind the UAE, you have Bahrain. Behind both, you have Saudi Arabia, and you have war. So this is a train towards peace and partnership, because that part of the Arab world understood that with a sponsorship by the United States and an alliance with a non-Arab country that is advanced, technologically advanced and allied to the West, they could defend themselves from Iran. They could defend themselves from ISIS and they could go into ventures. Do we know that Israel and the UAE are the most advanced technologically countries in the Middle East. Do you know that both of them wants to go to space together? That's I mean, amazing. we're talking about yeah. a different era, not the old era of peace agreements. 
Yeah, and the economic ties. I mean, the, the, yeah. these Arab states being able to expand their economies beyond oil. And Israel's a very innovative state. And I think that the, uh, the we, we see the bilateral relations changing. But I think, you know, businessman to businessman, businesswoman to businessman, That's there right. are these incredible deals that once they get going, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. You've, they can't. Yeah, we've changed, we've changed the Once world. Once students ver- would visit each other on universities, that's what they're preparing. Yeah. When they are on both campuses, forget about it. You cannot destroy peace, even by force. At that's that right. No, it's one of the uh, true accomplishments and in, in game-changing movements of the last uh, the two years. Um, I want I know we uh, got to let you go here soon, but I wanted to ask you, uh, there's a very important theme in the book, and it, it mirrors some of the reporting I've done. And so I'd like to change uh, turn for a second to Russia, because I don't think a lot of people, unless they read our story a few months ago, realize you were a victim a little bit of the Russia collusion hoax mm-hmm. that was, was carried out. And now we know just how big a hoax was with the release of the document yesterday, the classified information about the fact that the FBI was warned that Hillary Clinton had created a false Russian narrative just simply to put Trump on the defensive. Uh, but you got scooped up in the um, uh, the Mueller investigation. You obviously uh, walked away unscathed because you did nothing wrong. But mm-hmm. in the book, you mm-hmm. raise a prospect that I, I begin I'm beginning to hear more and more myself included say, and that is that Russia and the collusion uh, efforts, particularly those that continued on past January when the change of the guard occurred, were more designed not not to be a resolution of the Russia questions but more designed to hamper the Trump administration from reversing Obama-era policies and putting yeah. in a whole new paradigm. Talk about that. I think it's one of the most profound um, uh, points that you make in this great book, The Choice. John, what I have written in this book will serve investigators, strategic investigators, and historians as to what is the reality. Where is the Russia investigation in history? The forces behind the Russia investigation, that's only, we know the tip of the iceberg. But once we will see the entire iceberg, we realize that that investigation, it was a decoy, a historical strategic decoy to not to allow the American public to understand what was the real game. And here's the real game in my view. It's in the book, but I'm sure that more investigation will be, will go that way once we have all the information. So the Obama-Biden administration got into deals. And the bigger one was with Iran. And I spoke with you before that there was another deal in the making. It did not make it, actually, which was a deal with the Muslim Brotherhood. It covers. Right. It yeah, a lot covers. of people don't know that. It, well, let me, that, that's also in my book, but it will be aggrandized later. It covers a deal that was supposed to be made once the Brotherhood will seize Egypt and Libya and Tunisia and Jordan. Get ready, buckle up. And eventually the UAE and Saudi Arabia. That was the plan. Wow. And who, who is saying this? The Muslim Brotherhood. We, we don't need a lot of research. They were saying this when they were installing themselves in Egypt. And they said, this is going to be the caliphate. And the Obama administration strategists have been helping the Muslim Brotherhood, clearly in Libya with the downfall of Gaddafi and the empowerment of the Islamic militias, Brotherhood, clearly with Morsi. We know all the business with Morsi and in Tunisia and elsewhere. So what was behind that? Behind that was the Muslim Brotherhood will be controlling huge amount of energy and oil and petrol and all that. And then the circles who would help them to come to power will be among those who will profit. So now, my friend, the world is changing. We have a deal with Iran that would cover the Shia world, a deal with the Muslim Brotherhood that will cover the uh, Sunni world. 
And those deals will themselves come to help those elites in the West, including in the United States, to rule for a long period of time. Now, with this big schema or scheme, you have Donald Trump emerging from nowhere, right? Because the traditional Republicans were not able to win political wars against the Democratic machine because it was profiting from the Iran deal. All right. So now the uh, Donald Trump uh, arrives to the scene and knowingly or unknowingly, he was cracking that strategy. He was walking through it. At first, it didn't, you know, the Obama people did not take him seriously, right? Till about fall 2015. That's right. He was not taken seriously. But once he delivered his speech at the Mayflower Hotel, I was there. And in that speech, he crumbled. He said, I am going to be withdrawing from the Iran deal. I am going to be putting the Muslim Brotherhood on the terror list. What did happen? A deluge. The full-fledged offensive against him started. And of course, it's going to double and triple when he won. So what we saw in terms, oh, let's go investigate Donald Trump. We hate Donald Trump. But he, he didn't even have a political history to be hate, hated. It's because he dismantled a project that was huge. And just by winning, by having this popular support to win, he destroyed all that uh, worldwide interest. And hence, in my view, in my modest view, all these attempts of paralysis, of impeachment, of something that we have not seen under any presidency, Democratic or Republican, is a manifestation of a power that felt they were robbed from what they were trying to do. And it was absolutely vital for them to remove him from office in any means. That's the gist of one part of my book. Uh, it's such a profound thought and the more, you know, if we said this three years ago, we would have been laughed off the face of the yeah, earth, right? I was. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we were, and that's right. And as I started my reporting, people were calling me a conspiracy nut, but the truth of the matter is that there was a apparatus within the bureaucratic uh, institutions that carried out this plan. And, and we now know it was a plan because the FBI and the CIA intercepted it. We now, they were asked to investigate, though I doubt anyone did. Uh, and uh, and now we can look back with absolute certainty, not with speculation or informed speculation, but with absolute certainty, this was a coup attempt designed to preserve uh, some of the Obama-era policies, whether they're Obamacare or more, more likely Iran and the realignment of the world that the Obama administration had begun, uh, often aligned with, you know, I, I think a lot of people forget, but the Democrats have had a 20, 25-year addiction to the George Soros think tank thought uh, processes. He's influential in so many of these policies that have been pursued and partly because, you know, he helped fund the, um, the uh, primary think tank of what I call the Obama era movement, the John Podesta mm -hmm. think tank center for American progress mm -hmm. and many other institutions around the globe that were all aligned. He basically created a corporate infrastructure to advocate for this point of view of the world. Um, if Biden were to become president, what happens to the Obama policy? That's my last question for you today. What happened? I'm sorry. What happens to the Trump policies? Um, how many can be reversed? How many are self-sustaining regardless of who is president? Well, let me be clear in terms of projection. They tried to destabilize the Obama administration for four years up till now, and they will try to destabilize even on, on and after election day. If they would win, if the Biden-Harris slash Obama administration is formed, they should not expect that the American, American public is that naive. They're gonna encounter a very fierce opposition 
because in the last four years, thanks to journalists like yourself and others and intellectuals, uh, the American public learned a lot. So the next opposition is going to be as fierce. I don't think that the next administration, if it's not the Trump administration, are going to have a promenade, are going to have just a travel easy. And right. then the American public won't say a thing. So that's number one. There will be a, a fierce opposition. Number two, they're going to try to go back to uh, reinstall their policies, both domestic, and there will be uh, obviously a, a very strong resistance, and foreign. So, for example, they're going to go back to the Iran deal. But things on the ground have changed. An Arab coalition has formed the opposition against the Iran regime and the situation inside Iran. You know, one thing I was thinking about, they may go back to the Iran deal and the Iran regime may crumble from the inside. So guess what? It's funny. They will have to make an Iran deal with the next government, which doesn't want to do an Iran deal with the next administration here, if it's the Obama. So a lot of things could happen. That could be my next book. But in my <laughs> view, the most important matter is that the people, the American people is more aware today. That's right. And many nations around the world, thanks to all the, this truth that is out and, and to their own experience, will not allow easily a full return to the former foreign policy and national security of the Obama administration. Yeah, such a uh, profound thought to, to digest and to think about. Well, folks, if you uh, enjoyed Dr. Ferris, as I have, and uh, you didn't feel like you got your fill of foreign policy policy last night at the debate, uh, I've got the perfect cure for you. The choice, Trump versus Obama, Biden in U.S. foreign policy. Dr. Ferris's brand new book, I recommend that you read it. It's a tremendous, tremendous read, and it's very informative. And it, it takes a not only a policy-by-policy policy look, uh, it also has a wonderful 30,000-foot view of how much the world has changed in the last four years under President Trump's um, leadership. So great book. Dr. Ferris, we hope to have you on again soon. I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us today. I will certainly come back and thank you so much for this invitation and for the phenomenal wor work you're doing. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you very much, doctor. All right, folks, we're going to come back after the commercial break and wrap things up. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Thank you for joining us. We had a great time with Dr. Wally Ferris. Take a look at his book. It'll be a great primer for the next presidential debate in a couple of weeks when we're going to be talking about foreign policy. Until then, stay tuned to Just the News. we got lots of breaking news on FBI, Russia, Ukraine, China, voter fraud, everything you need to know to get ready for this historic election on November 3rd. Until tomorrow, this is John Solomon signing off. You've been listening to the John Solomon Reports podcast brought to you by justthenews.com. <laughs>